Well, good evening. That's a very enthusiastic response. Good evening. And uh, you said that Sim was listening, watching somewhere. <laughs> and maybe one or two others. And if you are joining us tonight from elsewhere, we're delighted you're able to join us because. You know, meetings like this, a series of meetings like this, it's not common anymore. It used to be more common. But uh, people don't sustain coming out. But here, it's great to see you here every night and those who may be listening elsewhere as well. And Sim, we miss your presence, but we're uh, thinking of you, praying for you. I understand you've been writing about from Woodstock to London and back to Woodstock today, and uh, we trust that they're identifying what the need is, uh, and we'll be able to do something about that. I'm going to read you again from Matthew chapter 5. We've been looking in these meetings beginning Sunday morning and Sunday night and last night into this introductory section to the Sermon on the Mount, the most concentrated record we have of Jesus preaching publicly. We have a similar length of things he said privately in the upper room in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Uh, but this is his public speaking to a crowd that had gathered. And he began with these uh, words and I'm going to read them to you again tonight, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We explain that as recognizing that we do not have what it takes to be what we were created to be. We are poor, we're weak, we're bankrupt in ourselves. And when we face that, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he says. Not a place there, it's about a person. The kingdom is about a king and his sphere of reign. And the kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said in Luke 17. But we don't know much of the king until we recognize our own poverty because if we don't recognize our own poverty of spirit, we'll, we'll keep doing our own thing. But we surrender to a king. That's the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. That is, when we face our poverty, we face it honestly and we mourn it, what we call repentance. More than turning from what we do, turning from what we are, which is the cause of what we do. Our sins are symptoms. It's the cause, our own fallen nature and those who mourn their condition will be comforted by the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit, one of his names, because he replaces all that we are with what Jesus Christ is. And the logical step from that is the next one in verse 5. Blessed are the meek. To be meek is to be humble and to be submissive to Jesus Christ as Lord they inherit the earth. They discover life on earth has meaning and purpose. And they allow the Lord to direct their paths and guide them. 
How do you know when somebody is living in that relationship, living with the awareness of their poverty, mourning it, and submitting to Christ as Lord? Well, there were some, there's some giveaway evidences that come from that. The first is in verse 6, which we looked at last night. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The evidence of life is appetite. The evidence of health is appetite. And it's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is the moral character of God. And the gospel is restoring righteousness to human beings as to our standing, what we called imputed righteousness last night. That is what theologians, the term theologians have used. And then not just our standing, but our living. It's an imparted righteousness where we grow in the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does that righteousness show itself? Well, I'm going to look at the next two with you tonight. In verse 7, blessed are the merciful. We'll explain that in a moment. For they shall obtain mercy. In verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. If we put these two together, one is outward towards others, merciful. And one is upward towards God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's look at the first one first. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. To be merciful is to be compassionate. That's probably the best common word that we can use. We cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with people. There are those who have tried. I was in uh, Israel uh, on one occasion and uh, went down into a little valley down near the Jordan River. I was with my son-in-law. He and my daughter were at that stage living for a short time in Bethlehem in the West Bank. And uh, while we were there, they discovered they were having twins. So Bethlehem's a good place to have babies. Another friend of mine was born in Bethlehem. <laughs> Uh, of course, the Lord Jesus. Now, they weren't born there. They came back to Toronto and were born here. But we went down into this place, and there was this, this monastery. And uh, we went in to look around. And uh, the men who lived in this monastery never go outside of it. Few visitors were allowed to come in. Only a very few people could come in. And uh, they explained what they were doing there. And I said to one of them, why are you here isolated from the rest of the world? And they said, because our lives have been given over to God. And we want to know God, worship God, speak to God, hear his voice. We get up at 4 o'clock in the morning for our first, whatever they called it, I think it was a, a Russian Orthodox group, actually, and what they call their four o'clock in the morning gathering. And I said, but isn't this fellowship of God designed to equip you to minister to the world? 
Now, that's not our calling. Our calling is to minister to the Lord. Well, that's a good story, isn't it? I mean, we'd all love to live away from the world. No, we're called to relationship with him in order that we're equipped then to minister to the world in compassion and mercy. And to love God is to love our neighbor because as John wrote in 1 John 4 verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For, how, for anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And so one of the evidences of a true relationship with God is the quality of our relationships with people. Being merciful is a disposition. It's an attitude, not, not just something you might do once in a while. It's, it's an attitude towards people. It's an attitude of compassion towards people. I looked up today, and I hadn't done this before, the amount of times that the word compassion is used of Jesus, and it's quite frequent. You remember some of the verses in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost and confused. And when he saw them, he didn't criticize them. That can be a tendency. When we see the lostness of our world. But rather he had compassion on them. Mark 8 verse 2. When 5,000 hungry people had come to listen to him speak. And it says that Jesus said, I have compassion on these people. When two blind men came to Jesus, it says, Jesus had compassion on them. When a leper came, begging on his knees that Jesus would heal him, Jesus had compassion. And reached out and touched the man. They did Matthew 15 also with the, the um, when great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. It, it saddens me sometimes that we believers, and I speak of myself, are much quicker to judge the world than to love the world. I mean the people of the world, to have compassion on people. You know, Jesus didn't judge people. He said that. You remember several times, I'll read you John 12, verse 47. He said, as for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. Isn't that interesting? person who hears my word and doesn't keep them, I don't judge him, said Jesus. And then he said the next sentence, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. It's difficult to do both. 
Because if you judge people, they're not going to be open to being rescued and saved. So Jesus said, even if somebody hears my word, doesn't do it, I don't judge him. That's not my business. How the Christian church has become known for finger-pointing, I don't know. It didn't come from Jesus. Remember how he treated people like the woman at the well. And you probably remember that story. And uh, she came alone to draw water in the middle of the day. It says it was uh, at noon. He normally went to draw water. All the women might do it together in the cool of the day, morning or evening. She came there because she'd been ostracized back at home, evidently. And as Jesus discussed with her, he pointed out to her, you've been married five times and you're now living with a man to whom you're not married. And rather than judging her, he embraced her with compassion because he recognized your five marriages, your living with a man you're not married to, is only a symptom. And the symptom is this, you're thirsty. You're searching. You're thirsty. And thirsty people will drink dirty water. But if you drink the water I offer you, you will not thirst again. He didn't look at the symptoms and judge those. He looked beyond them and said, your need is, you're thirsty. That's why you're looking for love. You're looking for relationship. There are all kinds of possibilities here and, and you're not finding it. I can give you a water from which you will Never thirst. The beginning like a well, and the well is always deep, and the beginning like a spring, and the spring is always fresh. And she went back into the city and said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I mean, that would be juicy, wouldn't it? Everything she ever did was kind of tabloid newspaper stuff. But she wasn't embarrassed anymore because the Lord Jesus has gone to the cause. I'm thirsty. That's why I run after men. I'm looking for something and I'm not finding it in them. I have two sons-in-law, both good, godly young men, both involved in full-time ministry. One of them is in South Africa with my daughter and their three little children. And uh, he's got drawn into a ministry he didn't intend to do when he went there amongst drug addicts. He would go into the street where they used to meet in their broken lives. And he went in and befriended them. He would take him food and things and give it to them. And I've been with him on one or two occasions there uh, and he says to me, you know, it's not, it's not what you see outside. There's a real person inside that broken life. And that real person is hurting and damaged, often neglected as children, never knew who their father was, all kinds of stories behind them. Uh, and he befriends these young people, rescues them, cares for them. You need an endless capacity for disappointment when you do that because there are those who will begin to respond and they'll fall away. 
I, I couldn't do what he does. I'm not built that way. I don't have this kind of patience. But he gets let down all the time. He gets things stolen all the time. From people he hoped he was beginning to trust. But you see, that was the Lord Jesus. He was merciful. He was compassionate. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know they do because they become compassionate. Remember how Jesus treated the woman caught in adultery. I mean, all the prejudice today was against that woman. She was brought to Jesus, and they were demanding she'd been stoned. Of course, the crazy thing was, the man was nowhere there because they would hold the woman responsible. You remember Jesus said to her, when the crowd had gone, he said, I do not condemn you. No, but, but surely you do because you're the holy son of God and I'm an adulteress. No, I don't condemn you. This is a symptom. He did say, go and sin no more. But that is only possible if the cause that's led you here is addressed. All our failings and repeated bad behaviors and our addictions and all these things, they, they have, a, have a cause. And when that cause is addressed, the symptoms begin to wither. And the instincts of Jesus, you know, in his ministry was on the side of the sinner, on the side of the hurting, on the side of the lonely, on the side of the sad and the broken and the disappointed. The only time Jesus was harsh was with the religious leaders. Have you noticed that? Because they should have known better. The Pharisees who started as a holiness movement back in the intertestamental period after the Israelites came back from Persia where they'd ended up having been taken by Babylon into exile. The Persians then overran the Babylonian Empire. Babylon, of course, is Iraq. Persia is Iran. So it's the same old issue still going many centuries later. These two in conflict and they overran the, the Babylonians and they took control of the Jewish exiles and Cyrus, the king, let them go back to Israel and Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the last Old Testament books historically, um, record their coming back. And their group of them have got together and said, this must never happen again. We must never again allow Israel to live in such a way that God sends us into exile as a chastisement, as a punishment. And they formed what we now know when we get to the New Testament, this movement, the Pharisees, which is all about holiness. But it gravitated from the inside to the outside, as most movements do. You start with a real relationship with God, and then the next generation gets us a little bit away from that, until then it became an imposition of rules from outside. And, and they're the ones that Jesus is harshest with. You're like, what, what sepulchers? He says, outside, you look clean, but inside you're dead men's bones. You're like cups that are washed on the outside, but dirty and full of gunge on the inside. They're, they're the ones he was harsh with. 
He wasn't harsh with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. In fact, they are going to enter the kingdom first. Because they're the ones who more quickly recognize their need and their brokenness. And so remember the fruit of the Spirit, the nine qualities listed as part of the fruit, but begins with love, and the others you could say are not working at that love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And, you know, we often say, I, I often hear people talk about things in the world, we're very judgmental about them, we say, but we love them anyway. Well, that's only true if they feel loved. Otherwise, it's just a bit of religious cliche that we can use. Because love isn't love until it's felt. I mean, Jesus said, didn't he, in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And it's because we're loved by him that we're able to love others. And actually, we don't love until we know we're loved. That's why it is so important in the Christian life that we, we know that we're loved by God. We love, First John says, because he first loved us. And Romans 5 speaks of God shedding the love of God abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We need to know God loves us because the Word of God tells us He does, but we need to know experientially something of the love of God. I don't have it in front of me here, but I was reading just recently something by a man called Colin Smith, who's a friend of mine, he's a Scotsman, he's a pastor of a church in, in, in Chicago. Some of you might know him because he's on the radio and he's written quite a bit. But Colin Smith talked about uh, somebody teaching in a seminary, a professor in a seminary, and was teaching theology and said to the students, do you really believe God loves you? There are apparently 120 in that particular lecture that he was giving. He said, do you really believe God loves you? Do you really believe it? And he asked people, the students, to write down on a piece of paper, how do you respond to that question? Do you really believe God loves you? Only two said yes, apparently. The others said, all had something positive to say. They said, I, I do believe it because the Bible says it, but I don't feel it. I know I'm supposed to believe this, but this happened in my life, and I'm not sure if that's, that's love. And that's why it's so important that we experience the love of God and that we allow the Spirit of God to shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. Because when he does, loving is a response to that. It's a natural response to that. Become caring. And, and it's so crucial and central. When I go off to speak, my wife 
often says to me when I'm leaving the house, don't forget to love the people. Because sometimes I'm so taken up with the word, the message, the truths I want to share. Don't forget to love the people. And she's so right and she's so wise. And she keeps saying it to me. Don't forget to love the people. Some of you may know the name of a man called Juan Carlos Ortiz. He was an Argentinian pastor. He just died recently. He wrote several books, but he wrote a book called Disciple that was a bestseller. Anybody come across this book, Disciple? It was read by many people, many parts of the world. Um, I shared a conference with him in Boston on one occasion. It was a conference of the pastors and leaders through the six New England states of America. A five-day thing that took place every year. And I was one of the speakers one year, and he was one of the speakers. There's about five speakers. And um, he shared with us a story I'm going to tell you. He went to Buenos Aires to be the pastor of a church right in the center of the city. It was a church that had been pretty stagnant. It was quite a reasonably sized church, about 300 people. And uh, within a year or two, it had grown under Juan Carlos's ministry to about a thousand. And it was known, he told us, as the fastest growing church in Buenos Aires. And he said, I was quite pleased with that. I liked being known as the pastor of the fastest growing church in Buenos Aires. But he said, one day, I drove past the cemetery and I realized that was growing as well. <laughs> what does growth mean? He said, I realized we used to have 300 unloving Christians, now we had 1,000 unloving Christians. And he said, that wasn't growth, that was just getting fat. And it became a burden to him. I I'm telling you his words. And one Sunday morning, he had felt or at least not once anymore, but he had felt he should preach a series of messages on love. And on one Sunday morning, it was the first Sunday morning, he prepared a message on the text, love one another. And he said, during the first part of the service, as they're having a time of singing and worship, he began to feel very strongly he shouldn't preach his message. And so when the person leading the, the singing had finished, he said, now brother Juan Carlos is going to bring us his message. He said, he came up to the pulpit and he said, my text this morning is love one another. And then he stopped turned around and went and sat down on the seat on the platform he was sitting on. And there was silence. Everybody began to feel a bit uncomfortable. What's going on? He said the, the song leader leaned over and said, are we supposed to sing another song? 
After about two minutes, which was a long time when nobody knows what's happening, he got up, came back to the platform and said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. Went back to his seat. He said his wife was sitting in the balcony and he said she thought to herself, he's flipped. I knew it happened one day. He got up a third time, said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. Went back to his seat. I don't know, was it the fourth time, the fifth time? I've forgotten. But at one point he said, my text this morning is love one another. Went and sat down and somebody sitting over on the side of the building turned to the person next to them and said, is there any way I can love you? And somebody else said to somebody else, is there something I can do for you? And before long, the whole church was alive with people talking to each other. And he said this, there were 28 unemployed people in the church that morning. Every single one of them went home with a job. He gave other numbers, and I didn't write them down quickly enough. I got the 28, but I didn't get the others. But there were single mums who had a couple commit to take her under their wing and help care for her and for her children. Other needs. And he said to us, you know, I could have preached my message on love. I looked at the different Greek words. I would have explained those Greek words. It was all in my notes. I could have preached that message. And on the way out, people say, thank you, Pastor. That was a good message. Oh, I enjoyed that. Different kinds of love. That's interesting. He said, but 28 people would have gone home unemployed And this is what he said, and most people wouldn't have cared less. That morning, something happened. He said, the next Sunday, I got up and I said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is the same as last week. Love one another. And went and sat down. And people turned and said, who can I help this week? He said, for three months, I had no liberty to preach. I just got up and said, love one another. And he said, 300 people left the church. They said, we implore you to preach and teach the word of God, not to stand up and say, love one another. Anybody can do that. And they didn't like it. But he said, that changed that church. Suddenly there was a whole new dynamic of relationships that occurred. And after three months, he said, I got up and I said, brothers and sisters, I have a new text this morning. (laughs) And they all broke out in applause. He said, my text this morning is, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he sat down. So there was silence. Then somebody got up and went out to the door. Somebody else got up, went out. Within a few minutes, everybody was leaving the building. People went to their cars. They drove back to their homes or walked back to their homes or went to the bus or went for the train. And people went home. He said, and he, his wife, his two daughters, we went home. And we went down the street where we lived. We knocked on people's door and said, is there any way we can do something for you? Do you have any needs? So we discovered incredible needs. He said it was just before Christmas, and we had Christmas presents that we'd bought for each other in our family. We went back home, and we took them and gave them away to other people. So it was the best Christmas we had. Suddenly, he said, our whole effect in the community began to change. So we tried to reach our community. A lot of our growth was other Christians coming because they liked the atmosphere there. He said, we tried some evangelism explosions. You know about evangelism explosions? It was a movement. He said, but nothing ever exploded. 
and we tried this method and that method, he said suddenly people were phoning the church and saying, is that the church that cares about people because I've got a need or my neighbor's in trouble? He said our whole church changed, it was transformed. I looked up Juan Carlos Ortiz this afternoon when I was preparing this. And uh, as I say, he passed away uh, last year, I think it is now. And one of the quotes of him that they wrote on the little website about his death, I'll read it to you. He said, for many years, I thought of love as one of the virtues of a Christian life. Then I began to experience real love, and I found it is not one of the virtues of the Christian life. Love is the Christian life. It is the oxygen, and there is no life without it. Now, that event in that church in Buenos Aires was unique. That was a divine moment. God, God led that. Don't try it here. I never tried the people's church. Don't worry. It was a unique moment there. But I do know we can get so busy in all the necessary things of the Christian life and church life, we forget to love our neighbor and care for them. Jesus had the reputation. He was the friend of sinners. I don't think I have that reputation where I live. I try to be kind to people, but I don't think it's enough for people to say, oh, that guy really goes out of his way for broken people. My, my son-in-law has that reputation <laughs> amongst the people he's working with. He's our friend. They call him any time, 24 hours a day. He needs some boundaries, but he, he says people are more important than boundaries. You see, when we face our poverty and mourn it, and we're comforted by the comforter, and we submit to Christ as Lord, and we have an appetite for righteousness, it starts to get not easy. It starts to get difficult. It starts to get costly. And the interesting thing is in this verse, and here's an important spiritual principle in this verse, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Notice that. That those who give the merciful are the ones who receive. They're the ones who are enriched themselves. They're the ones who grow and deepen themselves because the merciful receive mercy. It doesn't say, blessed are those who receive mercy, for they will become merciful. You know, it's those who are merciful who receive mercy. This principle is elsewhere. You know, you remember in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. So we say in the Lord's Prayer, Father, would you forgive me in the way I forgive others? Because forgiving others 
And having that forgiving spirit enables us to receive forgiveness. If we become embittered towards others, we don't experience the freedom of that forgiveness ourselves. That's why Jesus said at the end of that prayer, Matthew 6, verse 14, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, so it's later in this same section, he says, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I, I, we can't make this an issue of works. You've got to be forgiving to be forgiven. I think it's the principle of the, of, of Chris, of the spiritual life that it is in giving that we receive, that we enjoy his forgiveness when we are forgiving. We enjoy his mercy when we are merciful. Jesus also said in Matthew 16, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. So if you want to find life, it's not saying, Lord, please fill me with yourself, fill me with your spirit, fill me with your life. No, he says, give your life away. If you lose your life, then you find it. Because as we give our lives away to him, and in so doing, we become then means by which he works in other people's lives, he gives his life away to us as well. And if you will lose your life and give it away, you'll find life. John, in, in Luke 6, let me read you this verse, Luke 6 and verse 37. Speaking about this principle, Jesus said, do not judge and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now that sums up some of the things I've just talked about. Don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn or you'll be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. And you give, and this is what's going to happen, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be measured to you. Those who give themselves away are the ones who are enriched in the Christian life. Those who are compassionate, those who want to live with all the dirtiness of other people's failings and sin and the brokenness as Jesus was. Want to live with that. And those who will be enriched in themselves. Because we give and we're compassionate. You know, there's that verse in John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood in a loud voice and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he said this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So John 7, verse 37. If you're thirsty, don't say thirsty. Come to me and drink and I'll tell you what will happen. Out of your heart will flow a river, a living water that is going to enrich and flow out and bless other people. Peter, you always pick, where's Peter? You always pick the right hymns. And we sang tonight, channels only, blessed master. Can't remember it all now, but 
the line flowing through us. Thou canst use us every day and every hour. We're called to be not just recipients of God's grace and goodness and love and enabling. We're called to be vehicles by which that is transmitted to other people. Channels only. We sang about it just now. So this beatitude is outward towards others. Blessed are the merciful, those who are compassionate, those who care, those who love, those who are willing to listen to people. But they will obtain mercy. They'll be the recipients of compassion. The next one, I won't take long on this because I took longer there than I thought. And I mustn't talk too long. My wife said to me every night, how long do you talk for? And every night I said, that was too long. <laughs> so I'm cutting it down a bit tonight. I promised her I would. She said, you spoil what you say because you say too much. Just say enough. <laughs> so one is outward. Blessed are the merciful. The other is upward in that he speaks of blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. These things are connected. Of course, all these beatitudes are connected. Now, this one probably scares us silly, the idea of being pure in heart because if I was to say to you, anybody here who's pure in heart, I think anybody would dare put your hand up. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't. Because my own heart fits the diagnosis of Jeremiah. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't know. If we try to kid ourselves sometimes, my heart's doing well, but then suddenly something happens. Oh, it's not after all, because underneath there are all kinds of mixed motives and things. So what does he mean by pure? Well, there are three Greek words that translate pure in our English, and the word translated here is not pure as in perfect. It's the Greek word katharos. And it means pure in the sense of being unmixed with other things, undiluted. It was used of wheat, apparently, so if the wheat was winnowed and sifted from the chaff, it could be described as pure wheat, katharos wheat. It may not be grade A wheat. It may not get the best price on the market, but it's pure wheat in the sense it's been separated from all the other chaff and straw and things that otherwise would, would, would pollute it. It was used of wine that had not been diluted, so it was pure wine. It, mightn't be, it might taste like vinegar, but it's pure wine in the sense that it's, it's, it's just wine. It's real wine etc. And that's the word used here. So he's not talking about a perfect heart. He's talking about pure in the sense of being unmixed, undiluted. And I think a good word for this is the word single-minded. And I say that because Paul in Philippians chapter 3 Remember, he, he talked about 
the fact that he had not taken hold of that for which he had been saved. I've not, I've not yet taken, uh, I'll read to you, Philippians 3.13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm on the way. I've not got hold of it as I'd love to get hold of it. But this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now, it's Paul's phrase. You know, I, I, I'm not perfect. I haven't yet got hold of that. But this one thing I do, I think that this one thing I do is what this word pure is about. Not these 20 things I dabble with. One of them is my Christianity. But then I've got my business as well, of course, to look after. I've got my family to care for. I've got my hobbies. I've got my interests. And they're sort of on an equal level. But I go to church on Sundays and I get involved in Christian things. No, this one thing I do means that in my business, in my family, in my home, in my hobbies, there's an undergirding backbone that says this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on that I might know the goal to which Christ has called me. You read that context, I might know Christ. I might know the power of his resurrection. He just talked about that. I might know the price which he has called me. These things, my business is important, my families are important, our interests, our hobbies, all these things are good and legitimate. But Christ is not detached from them. He, he is at the heart of them. Every part of my life is connected with Jesus Christ. When I read this uh, thing with um, you know, Juan Carlos Ortiz today, after he died, this, this memorial site that was set up, um, they were saying, somebody asked him, uh, do you play any sport? He said, my sport is preaching. Do you have any hobbies? He said, my hobbies are preaching. What's your work? My work is preaching. What do you do in your spare time? I preach. When you go on holiday, what do you do? Well, I usually preach. Now, that's a bit fanatical, a bit imbalanced, but they were saying this about him, that this was his life. <laughs> but nevertheless, what should be, I don't want to say should, what can be, we face our poverty, we mourn it, we meekly submit to Christ as Lord, and we experience the appetite for righteousness, is that in our hobbies, in our vacations, in our families, in our business, Christ is central. And that he exhibits himself in us. And so those who are merciful with this outward perspective have this upward perspective too. They are pure in heart, single-minded. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 8, it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He's going in different directions at the same time, and you can't do that. And in Psalm 86 and verse 11, the psalmist prays there, give me an undivided heart, 
that I may fear your name. Give me an undivided heart, a single purity of heart, because in a divided heart, the secular will always swallow the sacred. It's an undivided heart where Christ is in the secular aspects of my life that breeds stability. And for those who are pure in heart, we won't say more about that because I'm going to watch the time and I'm just finished now, finishing now. But for those who are pure in heart, he says, they shall see God. That doesn't mean physically one day we will in the sense that every eye will see him. That will be true for all of us. But those who are single-minded, pure in heart, will see God all over the place in everything round about them. They'll see him in creation. As Jeremiah, as, sorry, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the creation uh, reveals the nature of God. He's revealed himself in the beauty of creation. Is it in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. He speaks of creation there, speaking, speaking. It declares of God. It speaks of him. And every time on a starry night, you're outside or you're watching the beautiful four colors or we see the spring life coming back, it's speaking to us about God. And we who know and love the Lord Jesus should appreciate beauty probably more than anybody because we know behind it lies the creator, it's his fingerprints in it. I remember hearing somebody say one day that when an artist paints a picture, he does two things. He usually copies something, but he also expresses himself. So you look at that work of art, you recognize something. It's a landscape or it's a portrait. But at the same time, the artist expresses himself. This is why art is so of such value. Because it's an expression. So if you look at a Picasso, for instance, you recognize that's a woman he's painting there. But then you say, man, Picasso is very strange because there's a kind of leg coming out of the side of her head and there's an arm coming from somewhere else and it's all distorted. And, and he's giving a picture of a distorted world. So an artist copies something. Otherwise, it's just a mishmash of nothing. He copies something, she copies something, and they express themselves. Now this person said, when God, the supreme artist, created the world, he did only one of those two things. He didn't copy anything. There was nothing to copy. He just expressed himself. And so the heavens declare the glory of God, etc. And um, we see in our creation, we see how big God is. You know, the, uh, our galaxy is 100,000 light years across just our galaxy, and consists of billions of stars, and there are billions of galaxies. We can only see one with the naked eye if you know where to look on certain times. Andromeda, our nearest neighbor, you can just see it. It's as big as our galaxy, but it looks tiny in the sky, just a haze of light, just a short haze of light, and it's 2.2 million light years away. It tells you God's big. 
When I was sitting at my desk the other day, a little money spider came running along, a tiny little thing, with its legs and its body, its eyes, and was going somewhere to thought where it was going. So that tiny little thing, created by God, has all its intestines, its little heart, its brain, blood vessels, little muscles. God is big when you look at the creation. He's tiny when you look at the detail which he makes us. That, that makes us secure, doesn't it? We have a God who's big enough for anything that may ever threaten us. Small enough to be consumed with detail. Another hymn we sing sometimes, I don't know if you know it here. I've forgotten what the first line is, but there's one verse that says, Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christ-less eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers of deeper beauty shine. Since I know as now I know, I am his and he is mine. No, love with everlasting love. That's how it starts. That's a beautiful hymn that talks about seeing God. We see him in creation. We see him in circumstances. You know, things go wrong, but we don't panic because as Romans 8.28 says, in all things, God works for good to those who love him. The, the King James rendering was a poor translation. And I think it's led some of our thinking astray about that, which says all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But things are not active in that verse, they're passive. It's not that things work for good. It's in all things, God works for good. So the things might be bad in themselves. They may have an origin that's evil. But in all things, God works for good. And that's how we face the issues of life that we struggle with sometimes, the uncertainties, the things that go wrong and are part of our planning. Say, God, I can thank you that in this, you'll work out something good. And we trust him for that. And those who are pure in heart see God. And the single-minded person who says, this one thing I do, says for what Jesus said later in the Sermon on the Mount, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else is added to you. Everything else falls into place. But your single-mindedness is seeking God, his righteousness, and therefore you see him and you see him at work. But if our hearts are not like that, the great thing about Scripture that tells us hearts are always redeemable. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me, said David in Psalm 51. And Ezekiel, God says, I'll give you a heart transplant as well. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so this outward, blessed are the merciful, the compassionate, the kind, they'll receive, shaken down, pressed together, overflowing, everything they give. But they are giving, merciful, Loving, compassionate. But they're also single-minded. This one thing I do, pure in heart. And they see God. So they're not frightened. Not scared. We trust and see that he is working in the situations for good. 
But if we don't know what it is to have a pure heart like that, single-minded, looking to God, it's because we're not merciful. If we're not merciful, it's because we're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If we're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's because we're not meek, submitted to Christ as Lord. If we're not meek, it's because we're not mourning our poverty. If we're not mourning, so we don't know our poverty. If we're not aware of our poverty of spirit, we're not happy. Because these are the ingredients of blessed, the Greek word makarios, of what it means to be happy. And tomorrow we're going to look at the last two, which talk about our lives out in the world. He talks about blessed are the peacemakers, whatever that means. We'll talk about it tomorrow night. And blessed are those who are persecuted when they stick their necks out in the world. And we'll talk about those too. But let's pray together. And I don't know how the Spirit of God may have spoken to you tonight. I don't know what you've been going through, what you're in, where this is a word from God for you. But let's, in a moment of quiet, just respond to God. Maybe we need to ask him to deep work of compassion and love in our heart. Maybe we need to know that we're loved by God. Ask him to shed abroad his love in your heart, that you can love, be merciful, be compassionate. And to know that single-mindedness of heart, all the distractions that would pull us away, are brought under the Lordship of Christ. It's the moment of sound and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fullness of the relationship that we can enjoy with yourself. Thank you. It's not about just believing truths about you, having a bullet points of doctrine in place. It's that relationship of being loved by you, loving you back, of being channels through which the Spirit who's poured into our hearts flows through us in blessing to others. And thank you for the measures which that is true for so many in this place here tonight. Thank you for the measure to which this is true in this church, in this community. But I pray, Lord, you take us more deeply because we say with Paul, I don't speak as one who has obtained all this. But this one thing I do, I press on that we might know more fully the reasons which you've called us to yourself and the reasons which we have called us homeward in Christ because we want our lives to be a channel for your blessing. We pray you make that so for each of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.